turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, if you uh, have, a, have a Bible, uh, which, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, back in 1980, uh, I started studying the book of Matthew, and it's been kind of a lifetime uh, study for me. And I've been walking systematically through the book, verse by verse and uh, story by story. And eventually, uh, when I started, I started on purpose at chapter 8, which is after the Sermon on the Mount, because I didn't want to get into the Sermon on the Mount, because it's like a huge hole, and if you fall into it, you'll never get out. Uh, so I didn't want to get involved in that. So I started in chapter 8 and walked through the book through the years. And then, uh, obviously, in finishing the book of Matthew, came back to chapter 1 and been working through chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, so forth. And finally, I've ended up again uh, facing the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, again, it's, a, it's like a big hole. And if you fall into it, I'm, uh, you just never can get out of it because it is so powerful and so overwhelming. But I'm about to die, so why not jump in? So I have done that. And the Sermon on the Mount, of course, is a, a life-changing thing. Uh, the ironic thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that the greatest sermon preached by the greatest man who ever lived and then for a guy like me to come along and say, I'm going to explain it to you, it's a little, uh, it's a little uh, ridiculous, I think. But uh, as you look at the Sermon on the Mount, of course, he's speaking directly to his disciples. And if you look at chapter 5, verse 1, you will immediately note that uh, uh, there's a multitude there, no question about that. But uh, in that multitude, it says that when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And so he is literally speaking uh, basically to his disciples. And what he's doing is he's saying, hey, I want to tell you uh, where this thing is going, uh, what we're establishing, what this is all about, uh, what, what you're getting yourself into. So if you're going to give yourself to me, I want you to know exactly what we're establishing here, the new level that this whole thing is going to be. And so he gives that to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's really interesting that if you go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which of course is chapter 7, and you go down to verse 28, we get the reaction of the crowd. And the reaction of the crowd is, uh, it goes like this. So it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. Uh, the word astonished there is the Greek word expresso, and it literally means knocked out of your senses. So what Jesus had to say was so radical, so off the wall, so far out, that it literally astonished them. And you can see the disciples with their eyes bugged out, uh, their chin on their chest, and their mouth gapped open uh, as they looked at Jesus and said, wow, no, no one has ever had the nerve or the insight to say the things that you've said. What is it that was so radical that literally astonished the disciples? Well, it was a total, absolute opposite view of everything they had ever learned. You see, every world religion and the world as a system has a basic approach to things. And that is that somehow you must earn, somehow you must merit. If you are down low and you want to go up high, whatever that goal would be for you, uh, maybe heaven, maybe purity, maybe victory, maybe whatever. And how are you going to get there? Well, our world says you've got to earn it, you've got to merit it, discipline yourself, get your act together, uh, pull yourself up, come on, uh, put yourself into it, and we work and we accomplish. And basically, I love that system, 
because in that system, I can compare myself to other people and I can say, hey, I'm a lot better than they are. I go to church more than they do. I preach more sermons than they do. I'm a better person than they are. I'm not all I ought to be. I understand that, but I'm, I, I'm much better than most people around. Uh, but this system, Jesus comes along and just pushes that whole thing aside, that system aside, and says, I want to give you another approach to life. And what I want to tell you is that what, what you thought you should earn, what you thought you should merit, what you have worked all your life to get into, I want to give to you. And he does that in the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes form the premise of the whole approach to the Sermon on the Mount. And if you miss the premise, I promise you, you will miss everything in the Sermon on the Mount. Nothing in the Sermon on the Mount will make sense. Everything will be uh, misinterpreted. You will misunderstand what he's saying. Because what his, his approach is, this whack on the back, this blessed, this congratulation thing, this, hey, you're there. Uh, congratulations, you've made it. Oh, you are so fortunate. Uh, blessings on you. And he's giving us something brand new. So it's way beyond the, er the uh, possibility of meriting or earning. Now, why is that his approach? Well, he gives it to us in the Beatitudes, which again is the premise of the Sermon on the Mount. He starts out by blessed are the poor in spirit. He's not obviously not talking about finances. He's talking about spirit. And the Greek word for poor is really interesting because it's the strongest Greek word for poverty. Uh, the widow, she had two coins, two mites, two coins. But that this word doesn't refer to her because she had something. This word for poverty means absolutely no resource whatsoever. And so Jesus has come to us and said, in the inner spirit of your being, if I take a knife and I slice you down the middle and I go to the core of your existence, what makes you tick, what drives you, what, what gives you your attitudes, what forms your perspective, what makes you who you are, what do I find there? I find absolutely nothing, he says. You are absolutely without research. You are helpless. Now, most of us take a look at that and say that's a negative, but Jesus is approaching it as a positive. It's not that I've sinned and I've become helpless. We have sinned, but that's not why we're helpless. And the reason we're helpless is because he's created us that way. See, this is a positive, not a negative. And the reason he's created us helpless without resource is because he wants to come and be our resource. And the scripture, he talks in the Beatitudes about uh, the kingdom of heaven. And you'll note in the first beatitude, it ends where theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you'll note the last beatitude ends with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, verse 10. So these become the bookends by which he's presenting the premise. And the kingdom concept in Matthew is not a, it's not a location to go to. You can't technically go move into or relocate into a thing called the kingdom. It's not space. It's, it's a relational concept. And the concept of relationship found in the kingdom is this merger that takes place. Here I am in my helplessness. Here, is, here he is in his overwhelming resource. And he wants to come and literally merge with me. And in that merger, my, re, my helplessness my nature, his nature, in the intermixing, in the fusion, in the welding, in the merger, in the saturation of those two, in the mixing of those two, I become this brand new creature 
that cannot, it's a new creature that cannot be without that mixture. In other words, I can't be this on my own. He's decided not to be this on his own. But when the two of us, my helplessness and his overwhelming resource come together, there is this, there is this mixture that creates this new creature that, that is phenomenal. And it's a new creature who lives in this new covenant, which is the new level. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that this, this confrontation, this merger, this, this coming together with God in intimacy and fullness is so radical that it's as radical as a stone statue becoming a living man. So this, this new creature, you can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't pull it off. You can't discipline yourself to get it. It's the, it's the inner mixture, the merger between a man and God. And in that mixture, this new creature, old things are passed away. The old all things become new. And this mixture becomes the Christian kingdom. The kingdom person is this one who has this, who has this merger. Now, as he moves through the Sermon on the Mount from that premise, he takes them and challenges us in verse 20. 20, chapter 12, uh, 5, verse 20. He says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's beginning to talk about a new righteousness that is literally the, the result of this permeating, this intimacy, this oneness, this, this togetherness between God and man. And in that togetherness, this, this, this merger this phenomenal righteousness begins to take place. It is a righteousness that is so far beyond the righteousness of the scribe and the Pharisees that it's undescribable. In fact, he says, I know you do, do, didn't get this and you don't understand. So he says, I'll give you six illustrations. And there are six illustrations of this given at the end of chapter five. It goes from verse 21 down through verse 48. And you know these illustrations. The first one is about murder. The old timer, for instance, said, hey, the best I can do is not kill you. I hate you. I get upset. I have anger issues. I get, uh, I just have bad days. I lose my temper and, and I despise you and I hold grudges against you. But the one thing I can, uh, the only thing I can do is I'm going to draw a line and the line across to I will, uh, 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 over which I will not cross is I'm not going to kill you. I'll bad mouth you. I'll uh, take a picture of your picture and put it on the wall and get a shotgun and blow your head off. But I'm, I am not going to kill you. I'm going to discipline myself and not kill you. Jesus said, let me take you to this, to this merger. Let me take you to this new level. And let me talk to you about don't get angry, which is verse 22. And immediately I respond to that and say, well, that's impossible. And it is. Well, everybody gets upset. I know. I get angry just thinking about not getting angry. I know. I mean, I've been to anger management class five times and got mad and left every time. I understand. I, I can't help it. I have a, a temper. I know. My dad dropped me twice on my head when I was a kid, and it's not my fault. I understand that. So this is impossible, which you see proves his point. We're helpless, aren't we? See, there's no way in the world you're ever going to pull that off. Not get upset. Not get angry. There's, there's no way to get that done. Not murder, I can get that done. But not get angry, I can't pull that off. Which brings us back to his premise. I'm absolutely helpless. But see, is it possible that there is a fullness of the presence of God 
Is it possible that an individual could literally be filled with God? Is it, is it possible that you could literally have the very nature of the person of God himself literally flow within the flesh of your being and permeate your mind and your mind in his mind and your heart in his heart and your will in his will would literally come together in a merger and that you and him, you don't become God. You're always helpless. I understand that. But is it possible that the resource of the God who built you as and made you helpless wants to fill us and literally wants to live within us and wants to flow through us and energize us and enhance us and that our life is to literally be a demonstration of who he is. Is that possible? And if it's possible, I want that. Now we give six of those illustrations and each one of them drives us back to the fact that I am absolutely helpless. And there is no chance at all that I can pull this off, which brings me back to I'm helpless. He wants to come. And in his coming, I experience the kingdom person, a new creature is created. And I want to be that creature. Let me pray with you. Uh, Lord, thank you that, uh, and, and we all know, Lord, without you, it is absolutely impossible. But my helplessness, I can't even embrace my helplessness without you. I act like I'm not helpless. I take things for granted. I live out of myself. I bring myself to you today, Lord, that you might somehow at the depth of my heart embrace me again anew and afresh in your fullness and that what might come out of me would not be the result of talent, would not be the result of my own ideas, would not be the result of my will, would not be the result of my self-discipline, but could I be a product of the infilling, infusion, welding, merging, intimacy of the presence of God? Could I be a platform upon which you live your life? I give myself to you for that purpose. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.